All right. Well, good morning. Great to see you guys this morning. If you would open up your word to Exodus, we're actually going to be in Exodus chapter 19. We're going to study this whole chapter this morning, but I'm actually going to direct your attention for a moment to Exodus chapter 20, and I'm going to ask for your forgiveness. I do have water, but it's not seeming to help me, so if I am doing that a lot, I'm sorry. Let Let me start this message by letting you into some conversations that I had this past week or so, at least three, maybe four conversations where individuals were describing people in their life, most of them young people, who had come to a place in their walk where they they were questioning whether their faith in God was real. They were questioning whether God was real. They were questioning whether to walk away from their faith. And some of these people I knew, some of these people were people who had grown up in the church, our church, another church, and they'd come to a point in their life, and and I'm not trying to just direct this to people who are in their teen years and maybe approaching the 30-year-old range, although that's what most of these folks were. Because I think this can be a concern for anybody at any age who has had what I think I termed in your little outline there, the introductory thought, who has had low-impact religion in their life. And what I mean by low-impact religion is they have gotten around something that doesn't have as deep of an impact on who they are and what they believe as other things in their life have. Sometimes the most defining things about our lives is who's your family, who you're related to, how were you treated growing up, what do you do for a living, what would you like to do for a living, and those, those things can be the most defining factors, the deepest impact of our lives. For too many people, Jesus Christ is not the deepest impact in our lives, and, and encounters with him. Young people growing up in a setting where there just wasn't a deep encounter with God over and over and over again, sitting in a setting perhaps like this, like Sunday morning, over and over and over again, trying to figure out what, you know, hey, at least it's legal for us to look at our devices now. You know, I'll act like I'm reading my Bible. Back in the day, you just had to draw in color. Sorry. Or daydream. Play games with your whatever. But you sit in a setting that is advertised as God's place, God's setting, and over and over and over again, it's low impact. It doesn't turn your attention to him significantly. Now, here's the great danger of that. Life is coming. It's on its way. And when it arrives, without warning, it is going to have an impact on you, a deep impact on you. And you're going to have to weather stuff. And you're going to have to have something deeper than that to, to answer to that when it arrives. Because uh, you're going to be a teenager longing for a boyfriend and the boyfriend ain't coming. 
And you're going to turn into a young person longing for a spouse, and it's not coming either. And that's going to affect you deeply. You're going to bump into the realities of people around you become unhealthy. And death begins to threaten them. And you get to a point in your life, you begin to lose people in your life. You begin to lose grandparents. You begin to lose parents in your life. And can I just tell you, it's going to rock your world. And if you've had a low-impact relationship with God, it's going to disturb your relationship with God terribly. And you may not have an answer for it. And you may in that moment start questioning, is this real? Is God real? Is what I believe real? You know what you needed in that moment? You didn't just need some information. You needed that information to have an impact on your soul. You needed that encounter with God, not just with information, but with God to have ripped you open and done something to you that you are still living in the echo of that event in your soul. All right, let me, let me run you to the punchline of what we're about. You know, we're, we're at the foot of Mount Sinai, right? Remember where we are in Exodus? God has called the people to himself. He's about to introduce himself to them. Now, they've met him along the journey, and Moses has told them a little bit about him, but this is God saying, nice to meet you. Let me just pull you to the punchline here, because the punchline of the explanation of what we're about to read is in chapter 20. In this introduction, this is what happens in verse 18. It says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us, we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. How many of you guys know they were impacted by whatever happened that day? They've come all this way to meet God and they have adjusted themselves and says, do not let him talk to us anymore. I think that's an impact. This is a day that's going to be remembered by these folks. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And we're about to learn here, why did all this stuff happen? It wasn't an accident. God did this because he wanted to leave a lasting impression on them that was going to serve them when life showed up. When life shows up in a tempting way and offers you a better deal, or when life shows up in a threatening way and makes you want to look at God and say, give me a refund. I don't know who the heck you think you are, but you give me a refund. This is not the life that I asked for. Well, Mount Sinai is very helpful. They were supposed to be afraid. Now, let me just tell you, you live in a country, you live in a time, and you live in a Christianity that's only interested in introducing you to the little pieces of God. It doesn't want you to fully know God. Right? We all know God is infinite, so this is a bad illustration. 
God's infinite, so we're never going to run out of discovering data points about God. Never. But let's just say, for the sake of our finite thinking, there's a hundred data points about God. There's a hundred significant things to know about God. And you and I travel through life, and we're busy, and we only got time for so much stuff, and we pick up a little idea here and a little idea here, and, and we're listening for those ideas, and somebody's presenting them to us, somebody on the radio, TV, a blog post. We've got a little idea, a little idea. And along the way, we've managed to scoop up 10 concepts about God. We've got 10 of them. We own 10 concepts about God out of 100. I mean, we're all busy, right? We don't got so much time to collect so much information about God. And now we're going to go venture out and do life with all 10 pieces of information about God. Does that feel well-equipped to go face life? What are you going to do when life shows up in categories that you needed some of the other 90 pieces? All right, so here, let me just let you in here. We are about to visit Freak Out Mountain. That's where we're going here. This morning. What did I title this thing? Mount Sinai and the Great Dilemma. This is about to be a very uncomfortable event. And what's experienced about God in this event apparently is one of those data points that you need to know something about. But in the world that you live in, excuse me, but in the Joel Osteen world that you live in, I know there's some of you guys who still manage to, to like what he says, even though I sideswipe him as often as possible. <laughs> now, I know he's a gazillion times more popular than I'll ever be, but you need to be analyzing what is he saying. I'm just curious, does Joel ever take you to Mount Sinai for a visit? Because I'm, I'm, I'm not taking you there. Moses is taking us there, and the Bible's taking us there. And you're going to meet a God that freaks people out. And there's going to come a day when you're going to need that God to be the God that you know. Not just the God who does nice things and makes people comfortable and makes all your dreams come true. That's, that's like Tinkerbell or something, I think. That's not God. But I know, but that's the Christianity that's being said in front of you. And, and so when you, when you meet this God, I, I promise you this morning, some of what we say this morning if you've been trained to listen for God to be something else, you're not even going to be able to hear what the Bible says this morning. So can I get a plug-in for this? Simple, basic Bible reading. What we talk about today is so much on the surface of this, you're going to be going, hey, Keith, you had to study all week to say some of this? You kidding me? You just get this from reading the passage. It's just sitting right there on the top. But how many people are going to walk right past it because they've been trained to listen for a fairy tale God rather than a God who freaks you out, which is what he is going to do for the Israelites and helpfully for us as well. So turn back to Exodus chapter 19. Let's read this passage together. We've come a long way to meet God through the wilderness, and we finally have arrived. Chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon... After the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus 
You shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You're going to be special to me. You're going to be my treasured possession. Let's make sure we hear that too. I'm just, I don't want to just freak you out. I do want you to hear that this God had a longing. He, he picked these people up on eagles' wings. He protected them. He fought for them. He delivered them because he loved them. And then he said, from now on, you are going to be a treasured possession to me. I'm, I'm going to treat you like no one else in all the world. Right, that's at Mount Sinai too, right? Verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people, set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up on the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready, be ready. Ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. Moses went up. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. Lord, this day is written down not just 
for those who endured it, experienced it, Lord, it is written down for us, upon whom the ends of the age have come, or that we might know something about you. Lord, I pray for, I pray for a spiritual upgrade this morning. God, I pray that what we see of you will bring home so many truths and why they are the way they are, what they say about our lives and our walk with you. So Lord, open our ears, open our hearts to this word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you've got this encounter with God. Remember what this is, right? This is, this is a how do you do moment, right? On this mountain, Moses met with God, burning bush. God reveals himself. This is my name, Yahweh. I've revealed myself uniquely to you. And now I'm calling all these people here. And so this is, we've, we've come to God's address. We've shown up at God's house. God is wanting to meet us. And this is the introduction Three days of careful preparation, you know, whatever level of clothing cleanliness you got going on now, it's not good. It's not good enough. Clean yourselves up. Prepare yourselves. Consecrate yourselves. You hear those words? Prepare yourselves. Consecrate yourselves. Do not come to this meeting casually. Come to this meeting prepared, intentional. Matter of fact, begin to direct your attention in such a way. Don't even, you guys married, don't even get with each other and have sex. Don't even do that. Just for the next three days, focus on this meeting. Whose idea is this? This is God's. And then all this freak out fireworks stuff, right? I mean, what's, what's my next image? This is a, this is, you can't really create these images, but. Right. Here, here's this people, they've come around this mountain and after three days, they're going to meet with God. We're going to meet with God. And I don't know what started first, but something that is described as trumpet blasts grows louder and louder. I don't know, maybe if you live near a freight train yard, just loud, tornado-sounding bigness is installed in the loudspeaker system at Mount Sinai. God is showing up like the heavens are crashing in upon us, a giant earthquake. The ground is trembling. Uh, have you guys ever been out in a lightning storm? You ever been in a lightning storm that's really close? Not one that's way off in the distance where you kind of go, oh, look, heat lightning. I'm talking about the stuff that freaks you out. We had one of those not too long ago. My kids were all like, whoa! I mean, one after another, striking right near our house. And we were inside. You're outside, and you feel the static in the air. And near you, these all over the place. And there's this fire. The mountain that you were just staring at a day ago is on fire. It just, and it's billowing smoke out of it. Are you freaked out or what? God, what are you doing? This is a fine how do you do. Welcome to Mount Sinai. Now, can I just say this before we, you know, let's read our whole Bible, right? Because this is not every encounter with God. This doesn't look like Adam and Eve encountering God, does it? Adam and Eve, you know, the biggest screw-ups in the history of man. When God comes after they have just dropped, fumbled the universal ball of humanity on all of our behalf, God shows up. Does he look like this when he shows up? No. 
God meets Abraham. God speaks to this idol worshiper from Ur of the Chaldees and reveals all kinds of things to him and, and relates to Abraham. Does he look like this when he shows up? Right, so so don't, don't run away from Mount Sinai and say, every moment with God should look like, oh my gosh, is the lightning gonna hit me next? But it does look that way right here. And this, this is intentional. God, God's not doing it. God's not out of control here. This is not like some angels, you know, showed up a day early and wired the soundstage wrong. And oh my gosh, look what happened. Look, there's fire and stuff. Oh, somebody put that out. It's not an accident. This is intentional. God shows up this way on purpose. Right? You, you want to get an interesting, you don't have to turn here, but, but if you want to get an interesting interpretation of this, Hebrews chapter 12 brings this event up again. Oh, and by the way, it doesn't bring it up again like slap God on the wrist, like we're in the New Testament now, how dare you? It just brings it up as an event of, hey, remember this? So it sounds this way. For, listen, in this day in the New Testament, you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. This is Mount Sinai this is talking about. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. You kidding me? They've come to meet God. And the people's response is, we don't want to talk to him. We don't want to talk to him. We don't, want, we don't want to be around him. This is how God introduces himself. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, this is so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And Moses has got, he's got a game up on everybody who's sitting around the mountain here. Moses has been near God. He's knelt down on holy ground. He's experienced God. God has communed with him. Whatever God does in this moment, it freaks Moses out. To where he says he trembled with fear. What is going on here? Right, let, me, let me introduce you to something. This is, Mount Sinai is quite an event. Remember we said Mount Sinai is a year-long stay. It begins here in Exodus chapter 19. It goes all the way through the book of Leviticus and partially through the book of Numbers to Numbers chapter 10. So all that information, all those events are here at Mount Sinai. Now, if you follow God, this is, you know, God is, this passage tells us God is making covenant with his people. You know, it's a little challenging to understand that because this is not the first time God has made covenant with man. And so you're raising the question, is this a different covenant? Is this a covenant in the place of another covenant? Or in some way, might this be a covenant upgrade? This is a, a new download, if you will. Because something's been happening. God has made covenants before. He made a covenant with Adam and Eve, all of humanity. But there's something unique that's about to happen here. Now, after, after Adam and Eve lose God's presence, remember, this is the future of humanity. God has departed from man broken by sin, and now God is not dwelling in man. And so we get to a covenant that God's going to make with Noah. God destroys the wickedness of the earth, and he makes a covenant with Noah. Do you remember the, the terms of that covenant? I, I'm just going to promise you, Noah, I'm, I'm not going to destroy the earth by flood again. Okay, but notice what God doesn't do. He doesn't promise his presence to Noah. 
And then God makes a covenant with Abraham to bless him, make him a great nation, to raise up this story of redemption through his lineage. And then God departs and Abraham waits 25 years. No God waits 25 years for this thing to be fulfilled. No presence of God promised. And when we get to Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai is going to install something very unique and very important and very sobering. God is going to introduce the idea to these people that I'm going to be moving in with you. I'm going to dwell among you. And I think that's got everything to do with why Mount Sinai feels the way it does. Because there's some things here, right? If you just wanted to go to the Mount Sinai souvenir shop and walk away with a few souvenirs, you would walk away with three things that would be primarily, this is, this is Mount Sinai. You would walk away with commands and laws, right? So you'd walk away with that. You would walk away with the atonement, and you would walk away with God's dwelling among men, the tabernacle, right? So we're not going to get out of Exodus without learning about all of these. And the dwelling of God among men, the tabernacling of God, Exodus chapter 25, God is going to now move in among his people. He's going to live among them uniquely, and his presence will be there with them. But for that to happen, there is a dilemma that we need to be aware of. It's no small thing for God being who he is to attempt to live amongst men being who they are. That's a problem. That's a huge problem. And it gets solved one way and one way only. And humanity still needs to hear this same message. It got installed at Mount Sinai. It's never stopped being perhaps the most, not perhaps the most significant thing in all the Bible. And it happens interesting, like the book of Moses, you know, five books, it happens right in the middle of the book of Moses. Both ends, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Right in the middle of Leviticus, you get Leviticus chapter 16. Then you get Numbers and Deuteronomy. Right in the middle of all that is chapter 16 of Leviticus. And if you go read what that chapter is about, it's about the Day of Atonement. This unique activity that God installs, He makes them aware, He gives them understanding that there is a day in which a Innocent lamb is going to become the penal substitute for you and your guilt. You, as humanity, are guilty before me, but I'm going to introduce you to something. Someone else is going to take your place and receive the penalty that you deserve. You deserve a penalty, and I'm a God who gives that punishment out. That's a problem. That's a dilemma. And the solution to that dilemma at Mount Sinai, listen carefully, it's not going to ever be in you being able to keep the Ten Commandments that I'm about to lay on you. But those commandments are important because they educate you something about God and they teach you something about who this God is. This God who requires atonement. It's not a negotiable thing. So at the center of Christianity, at the center of relating to the God who created us is this event called the atonement. And without that event, there is no dwelling with God. 
So these three things that God installed at Mount Sinai, they're still important to us today, aren't they? Because I think everybody in this room, your heart goes crazy when you don't sense God's nearness. It should. We were made for God's nearness. And so when you feel like your walk is out of kilter, or maybe you're here this morning and you've never felt like you've ever connected with God. You don't know what it is to have a relationship with him. You should feel weird about that. Because that's the greatest purpose of God in any of our lives. But there's this giant problem in our midst. And you can't get the problem straight if you don't understand who God is. All right, listen to this thought from Michael Morales. Your outline, he says, How the Day of Atonement relates to the theme of Yahweh's opening a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence is readily recognized when the significance of the atonement is understood, namely, that it makes possible life in the divine presence. That's what the atonement does. Atonement is reconciliation, at-one-ment, right? Those who are apart have become one again. They have come together. In bringing the divine presence near, the book of Leviticus itself sharpens the focus of what may be called the central theological dilemma, underline that word, dilemma and drama of humanity's relationship with God, namely the danger posed by intimacy with a consuming fire. Now, are these vocabulary words that exist for you in your quest to be near to God? I don't hear Joel mention words like dilemma and danger. I never hear that brand of Christianity talk like it's dangerous to be around God. He is so cuddly and pettable. What the heck is going on in in Exodus chapter 19 then? This does not feel like a cuddly moment. This feels like a scary moment, an intimidating moment. Listen, this dilemma, there is a dilemma. There is a dilemma. Are you aware that there's a dilemma? If you walk far enough into life with your desire to get around this God, which all of us have, and bumped into the thought, there's a dilemma. I'd like for that to happen, but there's a dilemma There's a problem here. Now listen, the the idea of dilemma today in our culture, please pay attention to this. In our culture, the idea of dilemma has has been brushed aside. There's, There's not a dilemma. And here's how you brush this dilemma aside. You you take God from wherever he should be and you just lower him. Or you ignore some data points, right? I'm just gonna go with the 10 I like out of the hundred that should be known. So you lower him, and then you take some information about God, and you give him a raise. And you improve him, and you think more highly of him. And so next thing you know, this incredible gulf between these two isn't so far anymore. It's pretty close. And now, if maybe if we just follow a few moral rules, we can get near to God. We can do this, because we're not that bad, and God's not that holy. Holy doesn't describe God anymore in our world, does it? Holy? 
tolerant does. Isn't God tolerant? Isn't that the God you're learning about by watching the news each night? Because the people who believe that God's not tolerant, they're, they're the, the pariah of our culture. Those people need to be eliminated. Because the chief characteristic of God today is that God is tolerant. But when you open the Bible up, that word is never used to describe God. Holy is a lot. But God is loving. Yes, he is. That's why he brought them out of Egypt to himself, passionately protecting them, bringing them all the way. This is not an unloving God who's doing this. Now, that might not fit with our definition of love, but this is not an unloving moment for God. This is God trying to give them an education in a category that they need some help in. They need to see who God is and what he's like. Listen, when you don't see this, you, you don't get the atonement. When you don't see what God is like and that he's so different and he's other than us and we are more corrupt than we want to admit, when you don't see that great difference, you don't see a need for the atonement. And, warning, you will abuse and misuse morality. Now let me just tell you something. There's nothing wrong with morality until you pick it up and use it incorrectly. Then it becomes everything wrong with it. What's wrong with morals, having morals? Well, if you misplace who God is and who we are, right? This is what some people will do with morals. They will just set them aside. Morals don't matter. God's not freaked out by what we do. Do whatever you want to do. It's really up to the individual, isn't it? There's no moral standard that anything should be done a certain way. Every person just needs to do what they feel like they should do. Well, that's good for you, but maybe that's not good for them. Right? Isn't this what we hear in the world today? Right? Can, can I frame this in politics for a moment just so you can enjoy interacting with politics over the next several months? And I can offend at least 65% of the people that are here. Democrats and Republicans have the pattern of misusing morality. In the Democrat world, they misuse morality by ignoring it. We label them liberals, right? They're liberals. If you're a Democrat here this morning, um, I'm going to give you something to chew on. Probably going to offend you when I say this, but give, me some, give you something to chew on here. Uh, you're identifying with a group of people who, have, who don't care about morals. They don't care what God has said. They don't care if there's absolutes. They want to empower the individual to do what's right in his own eyes. So there is a, we, we, don't, we don't need to be saved to get right with God. So it's okay if you do whatever. That's the misplacing of the atonement and the misuse of morals. You get that? Does that make sense? Right, what about Republicans? Republicans are actually even more dangerous for the average Christian. Because the Republican platform basically says, we're all about morals. And if you'll subscribe to the same morals that we have, then we're together in this. And our goal is to make the country a more moral place. That's our goal. Can I just tell you this? That's not the goal of Mount Sinai. But it seems so right. The Republican Party doesn't have a savior in its platform. 
It doesn't stand up and say that we are all hopeless and shipwrecked and God is far too away from us for us to ever reach him with our own morals and our own strength. God must do something on our behalf to rescue us. That's the atonement. That's not part of the Republican Party. The Republican Party is not going to visit Leviticus 16 with you anytime soon. And so Christians who sound, yeah, but they're for marriage and they're, and they're against abortion and protecting life. Hey, listen, if I have to choose whose morals to applaud, I'm going to applaud the Republican Party's morals. But Christian, please don't for a second think the Republican Party is going to bring you to God. It's not going to bring you to God. The atonement is the only thing that can bring you to God. And if you want to dwell in the presence of God, it's not going to be by your position on abortion or not. It's not going to be on whether you are able to practice all the right political moves or even all the Ten Commandments, which you know you can't do, right? The only way you're going to draw near to God is by the blood of a lamb shed for you that will let the presence of God dwell with you. Now, God's got to go to some pretty intense measures to convince us of that. All right, now, he, here's, here's what's happening with all this cosmic electricity going on here. God is wanting to move in to the household of his people. God wants to dwell among them. This is a little different. This is an upgrade from previous covenants. And, by the way, it's a foreshadowing of the permanency, right? right? We have the Holy Spirit today. You, you see where this goes, don't you? It's going to get upgraded again. From the old covenant where the tabernacle was among men to the tabernacle being right here in us. Right, so this is where this is going. But the same God, by the way, who moved into the tabernacle here, who did all this stuff, is the same God who lives here. He didn't get a lobotomy along the way. All of a sudden, he doesn't shoot sparks out anymore. Okay, what God does at this mountain is significant for us today because what he does is, is, is God is like... You know, and God's like installing electricity in your home, right? I mean, most of us here today can't even explain electricity. Can you? I mean, what the heck is it? I don't know. I just plug a toaster in and the toaster does toaster stuff and my washing machine moves and the lights come on. It's really awesome, isn't it? But how many of us really understand electricity? Most of us don't. I don't even understand that electricity is very, 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 by nature, different than us. So much so that, you know, we just don't have like these live wires sticking out of the wall, do we? Here's a live wire sticking out of the wall, just bare copper. Here you go, plug your toaster in. No, we hide it behind these little plates where you can't get at it, right? And, we, and then we design special, we consecrate special plugs to plug into that electricity because if we don't do that electricity when it touches us it doesn't do what we'd like for it to do <laughs> right because by nature electricity is a certain way and so we've got all kinds of codes and we've learned all kinds of things and so you stick electricity in the wall but you don't do it with a bare copper wire, do you? Just sitting there, sitting on top of your wood studs. All right, juice it up. You plug your toaster in, and a few moments later, your walls are on fire as well. 
right? So the wire's got to be so big, it's got to be wrapped in certain stuff, not the wrong stuff, right? You have to be careful with electricity. But electricity's a wonderful thing, isn't it? I mean, I, I love the fact that we have electricity. So much that it brings to our lives. I mean, I love the fact that, you know, things go dark, you just turn the light on. It's like, ah, illumination, what a gift. Warmth, turn on a heater, blowers, air conditioning, moving air in our homes. So much of electricity is a good thing. We can speak so wonderfully about the gift that electricity is to us. But you have to handle it a certain way. Because by nature, it's not like us. So what's God doing right here? He's giving them a giant object lesson in I want to be among you, but I need to make you understand I am not like you. And you're going to need to be mindful of that if this is going to work. Isaiah 33 says, Hear you who are far off what I have done. You who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Right? Listen, that's the right question to be asking. Who among us can dwell with this consuming fire? Listen, in, in today's modern, I don't really know God, I got 10 data points out of 100 world, we hear, hey, guess what, what I read in the Bible? God wants to dwell among us. And we go, wow, dude. The big man wants to hang with us. <laughs> totally cool. When's he arrive? Oh, shoot, I'm busy that day. The person who knows something about God, because they, listen, not because they're geniuses, because they just read the Bible a little bit. Here's that, wait, wait, you said the God who's in here, he wants to hang out with us? Whoa, that's, that's going to be a problem. And how do you respond to that? Do you respond to the idea that the God of the universe drawing near to you being part of your life, is that something that you initially had an awareness that this is a problem. This is a giant problem. I don't know if that's going to work out. Have, do you know how I live? Do you know what my heart is like? Do you know what my attitudes are like? Do you know how I use my time and my money and the priorities that are in my life and the God of the universe wants to do what? He wants to sit among my life? That's going to be a problem. Listen, that's the point trying to be made here in this passage. It is not a casual thing for God to hang out among his people. Why? Why all this show, God? Why all this loudness? Why all this trembling? Listen, was it because God's trying to run them off? Is that what's happened here? This is a, this is a cruel joke? Well, no, it's obviously, listen, it's obviously, you do get this, right? It's obviously that God is not trying to run them off. He brought them to himself. He's not trying to get them to say, how oh, we need to go somewhere else. This is going to work out. We need to go somewhere else. So, God, what are you doing here? Look, Exodus 15, Song of Moses. 
cries out, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who's like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Verse 13, he says, you have led us in your steadfast love. The people whom you have redeemed at a great price. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Verse 17, you will bring them in. Plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, with your hands have established. Why why are they at this mountain? Because God loves his people. He brought them there out of his steadfast love is why they're there. He's done all these works out of the love that he has for his people. But isn't it interesting that his love, his amazing redemptive love, that he's willing to pay the bill for us to bring us to himself doesn't translate into a people who show up and can now relate to God and worship God however they want to. Because God loves you, see. I mean, why is it that the world and modern Christian culture can translate what it means for God to love us is that it doesn't matter how we live? Really? This passage is a God who loves us, bringing us to himself, and then making emphatic, it matters how you live. If I'm going to dwell among you, it matters how you live. Does this fit your image of God? That, that God, would, God would put up boundaries? God would place limitations? God would show up and say, hey, 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 you. You're going to need to clean up before tomorrow. If we're going to meet tomorrow, yeah, you need, you're going to need to change that. Don't come, don't come dressed like that tomorrow. Clean that up. And, ick, and focus. Oh, and, and by the way, there's just some boundaries here. Here's where you can go. Here's where you can't go. And and, and if you cross these boundaries, it's going to be severe. Just take me seriously on this. Do not cross these boundaries. Do you have a problem with a God like that? Does that just not sound like the God that we're being introduced to by the world? And does it not sound like the God who theologically you think doesn't really exist either? Because, you know, I've read some things about grace somewhere, Keith. Does this ever get around grace? Uh, only after it scares the tar out of you. But I'm telling you until, you, until you wet your pants, you don't care about the atonement. I'm telling you, you just don't. There's a reason why God is freaking these guys out this way. John Stott says, it is when our perception of God and man or of holiness and sin are askew that our understanding of the atonement is bound to be askew also, or for most people, not even necessary. You know how many religions don't have Jesus Christ coming to atone for man's sin? Oh, they got got a Jesus in it. Really cool guy, walked in sandals, taught great stuff, loved everybody. they They got that Jesus. They just don't have the atoning Jesus in their religion because it's not necessary. Why is it not necessary? Because you have messed up who God is and who we are. The problem of forgiveness is constituted by the inevitable collision between divine perfection and human rebellion, between God as he is and us 
as we are. The obstacle to forgiveness is neither our sin alone nor our guilt alone, but the divine reaction in love and wrath toward guilty sinners. For although God is love, yet we have to remember that his love is holy love. Love which yearns over sinners while at the same time refusing to condone their sin. This is a dilemma, isn't it? And it's a dilemma that you and I can't fix. Listen, for all the good that electricity brings into our lives and into our homes and all that we love about it, it is still dangerous. For all that God brings that is good and all that we need and all that we long for, he is dangerous in such a way that only he can fix that. Only he can come up with a way that he's ever going to dwell in our midst. Listen, I don't have time to go into this passage, but if you visited Isaiah chapter 49, you would hear Isaiah reminding these covenant people that the God who came after you, the God who chased you down, the God who delivered you out of Egypt, that God, this God, he has not forgotten you. He loves you too much to do that. He has engraved you upon the palms of his hands. You remember that passage? That's where that comes from. It's Isaiah trying to reassure people who found themselves in a tough place. Life has come. And they're wondering now, who are we to God? And he explains to them, you are the people that God loves. He loves you. You remember what he did for you. Do you remember this? He brought you to himself. And he's engraved you on the palms of his hands. And he cannot forget you. So listen, there is no question for us. Does God love us? Does he love us? Yes. They're not at this mountain if God doesn't love them. They're not being promised that you're going to be a unique people to me for the rest of your existence. I'm going to love you especially. And I'm going to pay attention to you and your life especially. They're not being told that unless God loves them. But at Mount Sinai, they're going to learn some things about this God. They're going to be introduced to a dilemma. I think I wrote this in your outline. Mount Sinai is critical introduction to the gospel. What happens at Mount Sinai, this year visit at Mount Sinai is critical if you're ever going to accurately understand the gospel. It's step number one to ever understanding the gospel. It's God saying, listen very carefully. I'm about to introduce myself to you. And if you don't understand who I am and who you are, you will never understand or need the gospel. And so it'll be that piece of information that you listen to. You were in church over and over and over and over and over and over again. You heard this story. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Blah, 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 blah. And you never realized how desperately you needed that to happen. You didn't get that part because you collected data points of a God who never shows up this way. He never freaks you out. He never makes you sit there at 15 years old and going, I don't know what he's saying today, but it's scaring the hell out of me. When I go home, I got a thousand questions for my mom. 
good. Because let me tell you, the greatest disappointing day, if you're below 30 years old, the greatest disappointing day of your life is about to come. I don't know what it's going to be for you. And along this little trip, this little short trip so far in your life, you've been grading God. How's he doing? How's he showing up? What's he doing that really matters? But see, because you got, you got a value system inside of you, and you're trying to make God crawl into that value system and show up in a powerful way. Right? But, but unfortunately, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, to backhand you for being a teenager or whatever. I mean, I had the same value system as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm a teenager. I got no idea about this. I got no idea that there's this cosmic dilemma that's sitting out there. I just know I want a girlfriend. I just know it's a matter of prayer and I'm asking God to show up in that girl's life and turn her head and make this work. That's all I know. And if God shows up and miraculously that girl starts paying attention to me, God gets an A. (laughs) And if he doesn't, and if it really goes bad, and this is strike three, like I've prayed this prayer three times before in this significant category of my life, and God has, again, not shown up. I gave him a C last time. He gets a big fat F. <laughs> and, then, and then you turn 20, and you're super close to one of your grandparents, and they suddenly contract cancer, and they're dead inside of a year. God gets another F. And then your dad, who has always been able to provide for you to go to a certain school and have a certain lifestyle, he's lost his job. He's having to work with much, much less now. And he can't send you to college anymore. And you're going to have to come home, maybe go get a job. And you don't get to fulfill your dream that you always had. And God gets another F. And at some point, you start raising the question, I don't even know if I believe this stuff. I don't even know if God's real. Can you, can you just hear me as carefully as I can say this? I'm not trying to be demeaning because I, that, this is me at that age too. But you keep grading God in categories that don't nearly matter as much as the categories that he has shown up in. Your back is turned to the atonement and you have no value system for the Son of God coming to dwell in the system that God explained at Mount Sinai and to volunteer to be the lamb who would take the substitution of you and your penalty in order for the the presence of God to ever dwell with you. Do you understand if Jesus doesn't do that, Old Testament and new, you would never know the presence of God ever in your life, ever. You would wander around on a quest empty inside of you and you would never know God. And you could have a dozen girlfriends and they would never fix that. And you could go to college and get a great career and have all kinds of money and it would never fix the emptiness of not having the presence of God in your life. But somewhere along the line, that truth was of no impact to you. And when God didn't show up in your categories, you gave him an F, and now you're thinking about moving on. Can can I just install a giant, important category to you today? 
the greatest dilemma of your life. I don't know what dilemma you think you got. I mean, I know it feels like, no, the greatest dilemma right now in the world is a prom date, Keith. It's April, okay? I got no date and the prom is coming. That's the greatest dilemma in the universe right now. All right, can you just go with me for a second? It's probably really not the greatest dilemma, right? I mean, it's a problem. It's not the greatest dilemma of your life. The greatest dilemma of our lives is that we had no hope of ever being restored to this God who can dwell with a consuming fire. Who can do this? And God stepped in and brought hope to us. But he first starts by convincing you, you got no hope in yourself. Here, let me introduce myself to you with all my electricity. And here, here's some laws. Let's see how you doing. Here's what it's like to walk righteously because I don't think you got a good definition. Here's just 10. Here's what it's like to be righteous. How you doing? You want to be around me? Want to dwell with me? How you doing? Right, when you put on what you learn at Mount Sinai, it brings you to a point of hopelessness. I can't do this. Which aren't you glad Leviticus chapter 16 got installed and God introduced us to something that comes by way of forgiveness and somebody to pay the price for our sin. Listen, this, this is what happens at Mount Sinai. Eric, you can come back up here. How do you, how is this sitting in you, right? <clears throat> came in this morning for worship, came here to be amongst God's people, came for this event. Did I put these verses in your outline? Psalm 47. In Hebrews 12, this is confusing words. These, these are the kind of things that if you read them carefully, which I hope you do read your Bible carefully, that you see that shouldn't these concepts be in another passage and not together in the same passage because it sounds confusing. Yeah, kind of like this is the God who loves you. Does that sound confusing? This is him. Nice to meet you. Just want to let you know I love you. Really? That's why I'm, my hair is standing up? And I'm thinking at any moment now I'm going to be incinerated. This is love. Yeah. If you want to get in a relationship with me, yeah. Psalm 47 verse 1 says, Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy for the Lord. The Most High is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. Wait, wait, wait. And why are we clapping our hands? And rejoicing with great joy if we're to be afraid of God? Well, because the psalmist knows something has been done to separate us from what we're afraid of and to reunite us with this God. How did that happen, huh? Hebrews 12 Verse 28, after describing this event at Sinai and its significance, says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Right, so what does this say? We, we come with gratitude and acceptable worship for this God 
who freaks people out, who scares us half to death, when, when it dawns on you that you have been removed from God's wrath, you might sing these songs a little different in here. You might come in here with a voice full of rejoicing no matter what on your checklist hasn't been done in your life yet. The greatest dilemma has been solved. The greatest of good news is yours. Clap your hands, rejoice, celebrate, because this God who you and I would have faced as a judge removed that judgment and put it in an atoning way on his own son. That's the best news you and I could ever, ever hear. Right, here's, my, here's my translation. When we get into chapter 20 and Moses turns and says, do not be afraid. <clears throat> right? They're trembling. They're freaking out. Do not be afraid. God has come to test you that the fear of him may be in you. Right, here's my translation. Do not be afraid. After you've been afraid enough to seek me for the remedy to your dilemma, then you can stop being afraid. But until that moment, do not be afraid. Be very afraid. Be terrified. Enough so to where you realize, I can't fix this. This God is too great. I could never satisfy what he demands. Someone else will have to do that for me. And now I'm so grateful that in my visit to Mount Sinai, there's this thing called Leviticus chapter 16. The atoning work of Christ is what makes the dwelling of God among us even possible. Not because I've been a good person, not because I'm a Republican, not because I've figured out how to be moral. The only reason why the God of the universe can dwell among us is because of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. His atoning work. Let's stand up together. Would you let the Holy Spirit just interact with you just for a moment before we sing? I want to ask you two questions and I want you to check off a box in response. So don't just listen to me ask the question and then not answer it. Question number one. Are you misusing morality? Are you misusing morality? Look through your life does it, does it look like you're ignoring morality? Somehow, whatever it is that you've come to believe, it seems like there's a lot of things that you do that you don't take it very serious. You have some strange view that it doesn't matter. I mean, after all, God loves you doesn't matter if you're sexually immoral. God loves you. He's a forgiving God. It doesn't matter how you speak disrespectfully. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about small lies and exaggerations that are told. 
It doesn't matter because I mean, God is loving and he's forgiving. You are terribly misusing morality. If God is who he is, then he is holy and pure. And it matters. Maybe you're misusing morality by ignoring the atonement. You have made your relationship with God so much about you and your performance. What you do and what you don't do, what God can do and what God can't do. Because you are ignoring what the atonement accomplishes for you. And in subtle ways, whether it's the roles you play or your acts of morality, you have begun to believe that God will be to you and can be to you only what your morality allows him to be. You are misusing your morality. The God at Mount Sinai is way too far removed from you. Your morality will not win him over. It will take the atonement to win him over. So my first question is, are you misusing morality in your life? And for those of us who have known the Lord for some time, are you too casual in how you approach God? Is the only imagery that you have about God the, the concerning, caring voice of God that comes after Adam and Eve after they've sinned and just ask, where are you? This is the same God who called the people to consecrate themselves and prepare themselves and to focus and to adjust things in their lives, to be prepared to meet with him. Have you become too casual? All these details that God is paying attention to, do they matter at all? We come in here on a Sunday morning. Am I prepared to be in this room on a Sunday morning? My heart here, my focused, my somewhere else? The God who met these people at Sinai, he meets with us. Did I set some preparation apart? Am I mentally engaged? Am I honest before God? Am I walking into this setting with sin that I'm ignoring, but yet wanting God to cuddle up with me? I'm sitting here this morning, I can't remember the last time I gave an offering to God. Can't remember. Don't remember how much it was. Am I too casual? Do I draw near to God? Do I open his word? Am I renewing my mind? And I might know him deeply. He calls me to that. Have I just created some casual version of Christianity or somehow that doesn't matter? today, would you help us? Help us, Lord, help us. Mount Sinai, you showed up here a certain way. You wanted us to be aware you are a certain way. And Lord, you fully knew that it was atonement that would make dwelling possible. 
So none of these things atone for us. None of them do. Whether I've given in an offering, whether I show up here every Sunday focused and prepared, none of those things atone for me. But they still matter. Because you want to dwell in our midst. And you are holy and righteous. And Lord, this morning, would you remind us of the dilemma that's been removed from our lives. God, remind us. In all the places where we're wondering, God, why aren't you here? Why aren't you showing up? Why aren't you making a difference in this place? God, would you remind us that in the greatest place of all, you have showed up and solved our greatest dilemma. And how amazing that it is that we are here this morning, welcomed by you, the people that you ran after in Egypt and rescued pulled us out of the clutches of the power of sin and brought us to your dwelling place in steadfast love. We are here this morning, God. That's mind-blowing, Lord. It's mind-blowing. What am I doing here? Because who can dwell with a consuming fire? And yet that's what we're doing. It's mind-blowing. So Lord, would you help us? Mount Sinai is an upgrade. God who wants to dwell among us. Lord, as we sing, would you move in our hearts to be more aware of who you are, more amazed that we get to sing and are welcomed by you, more prepared than we've ever been as we move into the rest of this story to see how much the atonement matters in a way that nothing else can. Lord, that's what you're doing here. Thank you for a visit at Mount Sinai. Around you, such beauty, your majesty could fill an endless sky. Transcendent, exalted, the heavens cannot contain your presence.
is an amazing mystery that you've made made it possible for us to sing the line we just sang that you are my God Lord it should not be so Lord we another song says we were lawbreakers and thieves worthless Lord that's who we were and, and we we should have been the one and, and deserved it to receive the F, Lord, not you. Lord, and so we we bow ourselves before you in this moment, Lord, recognizing we are not like you. Lord, we are different than you, Lord. We are unworthy. Lord, but we, we bow down before you to worship you, Lord, because you are worthy. Lord, we want to live our lives this week, Lord, aware of your, your voltage, Lord, aware of your holiness, Lord, aware of the God that we serve, the God of Mount Sinai. Lord, so help us this week, Lord, to, to not be more like anything else but like who you are and who your son is. Lord, help us to live lives of worship before you, we pray. In your name, amen. Amen. You guys have a good week.